the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast is a verse-by-verse study with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. These audio sessions were recorded over a three-year period during Shabbat services at Beit Hillel, located in Tacoma, Washington. All right, uh, we're beginning on page 68 of the notes, and that's at Matthew 2, verses 19 through 20. We will uh, try to get through the, well, we, I'm sure we'll get through the second chapter and into the third chapter tonight. And as you can see, if you've looked ahead, I, uh, I decided to do an excursus, which is just nothing but a small study on mikvah in ancient Israel because it's something that we've talked about and talked about and haven't really, uh, uh, at least I haven't studied it to any depth. And so I thought this would be a good time to do it since we're talking about Yochanan Hamadbil, the Yochanan or John the baptizer. What in the world was he doing? And why was he doing it? And what did it mean? And, you know, we're coming up to those questions. Why in the world did Yeshua felt feel he needed to be baptized? For what purpose? You know, and all of those questions. So it will be, uh, I think it will be helpful for us to at least know uh, what was, as best we can tell, common practice in the first century. All right, that's where we're heading. Let's start with uh, verses 19 and 20. It says, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Sometimes when you read the scriptures, it sounds a bit redundant because you don't think that the angel would say, Get up and take the child and leave the mother. So why does he say, why does he have to remind him to take the child and the mother? But we should be reminded that that the the Semitic mind is uh, is inclusive of those kinds of things. It doesn't leave a lot to uh, one's imagination when it comes to just making uh, statements of. of a command type. So we see the same thing. Sometimes you're, when you're reading in the Tanakh, you think to yourself, uh, for instance, is it in, uh, uh, well, where is it? <laughs> it's in, is in the book of Numbers where each tribe brings its dedication for the, uh, for the altar. Uh, yeah. And, um, you know, it says essentially the same thing over and over and over again. And you would think that he, you know, either he, he already was able to cut and paste with his computer, so it was no big deal, or uh, he would have just said, if it had been any of us, he would have, you would have said, and, and the same was true for the following tribes, and, you know, get it all done in one line. But he doesn't do that. Why? Well, because there's a, there's a sense in which what's being written has legal ramifications. It has uh, historical ramifications. And so there's the need to tell it in detail and to make sure everybody's clear. All right. So sometimes when I'm reading this, at least I think to myself, why did he have to say that? that was, that's obvious. Um, and sometimes we think he doesn't say the obvious or we have questions about it. But we're reading, it reminds us that we're reading literature that was written thousands of years ago in a different culture, in a different time, and a different language. And crossing those boundaries is not easy. Probably the most often committed error in hermeneutics is reading the Bible as though it was written yesterday. I think the most important thing for studying the Scriptures and learning them 
is honestly learning how to ask good questions. I, I know I've said that time and again, but I just I'm amazed how many times I catch myself not asking the what should be an obvious question. And the reason we don't ask the obvious questions is because they are not obvious to us. That's why it's really great to have people who are new in reading the Bible, studying with you. It's really great having kids study with you in the Bible because they ask the obvious questions that you have never, you haven't asked for a hundred years, well, for 25 years because it's been so commonplace to you. And when they hear it, they have all kinds of questions that you didn't think of. And those questions usually are very important. So being able to read a text for the first time uh, can be very valuable in understanding its meaning. All right. When Herod died, Herod's death is recounted in Josephus. And apparently he died from some disease that ate away at his vital organs. It really gets kind of gory when you read Josephus. It gives you a picture of things coming out of his mouth and nose and and other places and like he was exploding from within. Though given every manner of cure from physicians, he died of his sickness only after he had given the order to have his son Antipater executed and given an ignoble burial in Hycarnia. It was Herod's death that signaled the time for Joseph's return. Even though the news of Herod's death would have been immediately broadcast in the local region, it would have taken some time to reach Egypt. Accordingly, the angel of the Lord, this is the third mention in Matthew, gives yet another dream to Joseph, assuring him that he is safe to return to the land. So the Joseph of Genesis is that dreamer, and the Joseph of Matthew also is well known for dreams. Now, have you ever asked yourself the question, how long were they in Egypt? Long enough to get an accent? Um, uh, no one says that Yeshua had an Egyptian accent, so apparently not. But uh, the biblical texts don't tell us. The apocryphal gospels supply various reckonings. One of the infancy gospels... Uh, and the Latin Gospel of Thomas have one year, while the Arabic Gospel of the Infancy has three years. And these are... Why were these apocryphal Gospels written in the first place? Well, in the ancient times, when you had all these questions without answers, you you know what some people did? They made a story to give you the answers. (laughs) And uh, that's exactly what happened. The message of the angel notes a plural. Those who sought the child's life are dead. We would expect the one who sought the child's life is dead. Were there more than Herod in on the plot? It's possible. Maybe his father, who also was named Antipater, may have been involved in the decree to slaughter the Hebrew boys. It is more probable that Matthew's plural is a generalizing or categorical stylization. In other words, there was... uh, there was a concerted effort to find these boys and to put them to death. And besides, as we know, Herod undoubtedly solicited the uh, help of his armies. Some have suggested that Matthew employs the plural in order to strengthen the parallel to Exodus 4.19, which reads, Go back to Egypt, this is speaking to Moses, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. And we know that that Matthew has been... um, trying his best and doing a good job of it, I might add, uh, at uh, making the parallels between the Exodus and and the birth of, of Yeshua uh, and that whole time with Moses and so forth. 
Now, as I mentioned earlier, there were others who obviously came back to the land after Herod died. Herod's death was celebrated. Uh, I don't know if it ever celebrated as a Jewish holiday, but it wouldn't surprise me that it might have been. Uh, the Qumran people had left their uh, encampment and came back after Herod died. So we know that there was a lapse of occupation there, and after Herod's death in 37, um, they, I mean in 4, uh, they came back and occupied that region again. All right, verses 21 and 22. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee. Or as we, as we say in the Hebrew, the Galil. Once again, Joseph is fully obedient to the word of God given by the angel in a dream. He and his family return to the land as God has instructed. But on arriving, he receives the information that Herod's successor was Archelaus. Previously, Herod had decreed that Antipas, referred to simply as Herod the Tetrarch in Matthew 14, should be his successor over Judea. But at the time of Herod's death, he changed his mind, assigning Antipas to be Tetrarch of Galilee and Berea, and named Archelaus as successor to his throne. He indicated that his son Philip should become Tetrarch over Uturia, Traconitus, and some other uh, territories in the north uh, Transjordan region. Of the three, Philip was the best, and Yeshua frequented the region under his control. So some may, we may suggest that part of the reason that John the Baptizer is said to be on the other side of the Jordan is that he was seeking some kind of refuge under one of Herod's sons who was the most amiable towards the Jews. But Archelaus and Antipas, however, were ruthless, and Archelaus was the worst of the pair. His short reign was marked by scandal, by brutality, and by tyranny. So foul was his reign that complaints lodged by a Jewish and Samaritan envoy to Rome succeeded in having him deposed and exiled to Gaul in 6 CE. Why, why would they have had any clout with the, with the Roman uh, imperial uh, government? Well, again, the Jews were known for uh, their revolts, were known for their causing troubles. And uh, the government of Rome was sometimes willing to accommodate them in order to keep the peace. After all, they were a pretty good tax base. And so uh, politics are politics, right? Follow the money and, and you usually figure out what, what's happening and why. Though it appears as though Joseph would have been chosen to settle, or would have chosen to settle in Judea had the conditions been favorable. Having been warned by God once again in a dream, he traveled to the north and settled his family in Galilee. So we have the fourth four dreams for Joseph. Verse 23. And it came and, and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Here's one of the verses that uh, many of the anti-missionaries use on a regular basis. Um, if you haven't studied your uh, your Gospels, uh, if you haven't studied your apostolic scriptures and you haven't been careful to study them, this is one you'll get tripped up on. Because what And you know what I mean by anti-missionaries? These are the Jewish people who try to uh, persuade you that Yeshua is a fake and the apostolic scriptures are erroneous and that Christianity should be abandoned, etc., etc. 
Uh, some of them are a little more ardent than others, but they're, they're certainly uh, at their task. Well, the first thing they will say is, okay, here in your Bible it says that he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that it would be fulfilled what was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, where in the prophets is that written? And you will search in vain to find anywhere where any of the Jewish prophets prophesied saying that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, so we're going to have to figure out what do we do with that. It's good we're studying it so that when you get asked, you'll, you'll have at least some answer. Or at least you'll know that, that the issue is there. Joseph takes up residence in the city called Nazareth. Nazareth is situated in the lower Galil, just north of the Valley of Jezreel, approximately 64 miles north of Jerusalem and 20 miles southwest of Capernaum. If you haven't been to the land, you may not know that. If you've been there, you probably have some visual uh, rem- uh, reminders of the city of Nazareth. The population of Nazareth in the early first century is estimated at approximately 480 people calculated on a 60-acre land area. The village was apparently founded in the 3rd century BCE, though it was not until the late Hellenistic period that it grew to the size of a small city. Its economy in the 1st century was entirely based on the surrounding agriculture. So if you were living in Nazareth, you were a farmer. Or at least you had something to do with farm produce. It was well known that Yeshua came from Nazareth, a city of low esteem to some. Remember the phrase in the Gospels, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? These are a bunch of Am Ha'aretz. These are a bunch of farmers. They don't know Torah. They don't know Halakha. What could, what could, could happen? Nathaniel is credited with the statement. Once again, Matthew wants his readers to know that each part of Yeshua's life is in direct fulfillment of the prophetic message regarding the Messiah. Thus, his living in Nazareth becomes the fulfillment of the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Yet, as we quickly discover, no prophet of the Tanakh makes such a statement. And we are left wondering exactly what text Matthew appears to be quoting. However, we should note that unlike Matthew's other quotes, first of all, here he attributes the saying not to a particular prophet, but to the prophets. Every other time that Matthew refers to the prophet, he says, it was as the prophet said, or as it was said by the prophet, but here it's prophets. This is important because it alerts us to the fact that Matthew is not giving us a verbatim quotation of one particular scripture from the Tanakh, but he is rather appealing or alluding to a general perspective gleaned from the wider voice of the prophets. Similar to this, in 2654, Yeshua appeals to the scriptures, plural, which must be fulfilled rather than to a single text. Here again, the fulfillment of the scriptures is seen in that the events taking place agree with the overall message of the Tanakh. All right. Secondly, it seems likely that our text has to do with a word play on two words that have similar, similar sound, namely the word, and this is, this is not the common suggestion. I'll get to the common suggestion second. This is the not-so-common suggestion. The word Nazir, which means Nazarite, and the word Nazarene, someone from the city of Nazareth. Now, uh, if you want uh, to work on this more technically, if you look in the Greek manuscripts that are available, you'll discover that the, that the name Nazareth, the city named Nazareth, is spelled a number of ways. So it must be that, that it was not clearly, what shall I say, that there was no standardized spelling for it, at least in the Greek language. Sometimes we wonder if the Greek gives us alternate pronunciations, and it, and it just might. And uh, that might be that might help us as well. Now, what is a nazir? And 
those of you that think, well, wait a minute, Tim must not know his, his Hebrew. Well, I've, I'm learning all the time myself, and I know you are too. I know that there's a difference between a Zion and a Tzade. However, as many of you have demonstrated as you begin to, to study Hebrew, it was not always easy for you to make a huge difference between a Zion and a Tzade. The Z sound and the TZ sound does not... Uh, is not equivalent in all languages. In other words, the TZ sound, the, so, the explosive Z sound, is not found in other languages. It's not found, for instance, um, in the same way in Greek. So for those who don't have that sound in their native language, their, their Zade sometimes do sound like Zions. In other words, instead of saying, instead of saying uh, note three, you might just say nozri, nazeret, rather than natzeret. And so it's not too far-fetched to hear a word sound similar in nazir, a Nazarite, and natzeret, which is the Hebrew way of saying Nazareth. All right. A Nazarite was a person who dedicated himself or herself to the service of God by taking a special vow which required abstinence from anything related to the vine and letting one's hair grow uncut. The first step in this subtle wordplay is to understand that a Nazarite was considered holy or separated unto God. In fact, in Judges 13:7, where Samson's mother relates the words of the man who visited her and gave her notice of the coming child, we read, But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and now you shall not drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing, for the boy shall be called a Nazarite to God, Nazareon Theuf, from the womb to the day of his birth. However, in the other Septuagint version of this text, and let me explain this, in the book of Kings, it's, it, there are two separate versions of the Septuagint. There's an A text and a B text. And in most versions, when you get a book, or when you get a, a volume of the Septuagint, the, the A part will be in the top and the B in the bottom. In other words, no one can decide which one should be accepted. So they put them both in. Because they, they definitely have differences, but they seem to have the whole story and so forth and so on. All right. However, in the other Septuagint version of this text, the so-called B text, the phrase, a Nazarite of God, or a Nazarite belonging to God, is changed to Hagiontheu, the Holy One of God. For the one who's going to be born of you shall be called the Holy One of God. So why is she supposed to separate herself from wine and strong drink and not eat any unclean thing? Well, because he's going to be separated into God. He's going to be a Nazarite. But in the, in, the, in the second Septuagint text, instead of actually naming him as a Nazarite, he calls him holy unto God. So I, I'll just cut to the chase. Someone who was a Nazarite was to be viewed as entirely separated unto God. Now, when I hear that play going on, when I hear that it's, is in, in the t- ancient times, it was just as easy to call a Nazarite a holy one of God as a Nazarite, that makes, that makes me think, okay, Nazarite was a concept that someone who was separated, I mean, that was radically separated unto God, would have been viewed as though he were possibly a Nazarite, had taken a Nazarite vow. So, this tells us that from a very early period, well before the first century, the idea of Holy One of God and Nazarite of God 
were linked through the concurrent translations into Greek. Now, I'm making one speculation here, okay? I'm speculating that both versions were known in the first century. I think they were. I think there's evidence to show that they were. Um, I know this gets very technical, but let's put it this way. Let's say you're sitting in the synagogue and you're reading. You're reading the prophets, okay? And some people have, perhaps there's some people that actually have some Hebrew. There's maybe the Hebrew scroll. But most of the people who have their own copies have the Septuagint. And the person's reading and say, well, he shall, you, you shall uh, abstain from strong drink, from wine and strong drink, and from anything unclean, because the child who's going to be born will be a Nazarite of God. And somebody else says, wait a minute. My, my, my text says, Holy One of God. So which one is it, Nazarite of God or Holy One of God? And how do you think they would have settled that question? They would have said, well, what's the difference between Holy One of God and Nazarite of God? A Nazarite is someone who has set himself apart unto God. Isn't that what holy means? Separated unto God? So I, th I think it's very, it's very possible that the concept of a Nazarite, a Nazir, was someone who was separated unto God. To this we may add Mark 124. In Mark's story, Yeshua has entered the synagogue on Shabbat, and while he was teaching, a man with the demon spoke out and said, What business do we have with each other, Yeshua of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Now, is there a possible tie-in there? Nazareth, Nazareth, or Nazir, and Holy One of God? It, it sure reminds me of the, of the passage about Samson, the birth of Samson. Here, Yeshua of Nazareth is paralleled by Holy One of God, utilizing the same Greek words found in the B text of the Septuagint with substitute for Nazarite. This helps us tie the two similar-sounding words together, Nazri and Nazir. Nazri and Nazir, with the very meaning of Nazarite, that is, separated unto God. Moreover, in Luke's account, he alludes to scripture relating to Samuel, who was a Nazarite, by the way, applying them to Yeshua. The Magnificat of Mary is modeled after the prayer of Hannah. Also note this parallel. 1 Samuel 2.26, now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor both with, God, with the Lord and with man. Luke 2.52, and Yeshua kept increasing in wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and men. In other words, Luke seems to want to parallel Samuel and Yeshua. Why? Do you understand what I mean by the Magnificat? The Magnificat is Mary's song contained in Luke. If you go read, My soul magnifies the Lord, right? That whole, what's called the Magnificat. If you go read that, and then you go read Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2, they're really parallel. It's almost like Mary has taken Hannah's uh, song of praise and, and applied it to her own situation. Why? Well, because there's a, there's a connection. Here's this boy Samuel who was born and was from his birth, what? Dedicated to God, right? And, and Samuel was known as a Nazarite. So is it, is it possible that Luke is wanting us to connect the Nazarite set-apart aspect of Samuel with Yeshua? who also was set apart unto God. Further, Yeshua's words at the last Pesach, that he would not drink of the fruit of the vine until he came into his kingdom, are reminiscent of the Nazarite prohibition regarding eating or drinking anything from the vine. The same may be said of Yeshua's refusal to accept the wine while on the cross. Why did he not? Well, everybody says he didn't want to be numbed. 
But is it possible that there is this sense of a Nazarite vow at Pesach? Finally, with these data in mind, we may note Isaiah 4, 2-3, where the prophecy of the branch of the Lord is given, understood as pertaining to the Messiah by the Targum. In verse 3, the text reads, He who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Once again, in the Jewish tradition of the first century, there is evidence that the Messiah would be called holy of God. So in the same way that the Nazarite is, is viewed as someone set apart, called holy of God, so the Messiah would be so called. So I'm suggesting that Matthew has given us a subtle play on words linking Nazri, Nazareth, with Nazir, a Nazarite, with the concept of the Holy One of God. And since the Septuagint had made a clear connection between Nazir and the Holy One of God, then it was easy to apply the equation to Yeshua, especially if at the last Pesach his words were interpreted along the lines of a Nazarite vow. I will not again drink the cup with you until I return. Okay, uh, question or comment, Buzz. Is there anything to the thinking that at the time of the Messiah, the the term Nazarene was synonymous with despised? Some have suggested that, but it doesn't seem as though it. The word itself, as we'll see next, it means a branch, which which is the normal interpretation, which we'll discuss now. This is what uh, Daniel Lancaster takes, and I, he has every. I mean, he has the most support for it, actually. I've gone out on a branch here to suggest another interpretation. But Nazareth apparently means, is from Netzer, same consonants, which means a branch. And as we'll see, Isaiah 11, 1, talks about the branch. And so does Zechariah, but uh, using a different, different term. But nonetheless, the idea of a branch or the vine is is clearly a messianic idea now so uh when he says he when matthew says he 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 settled in nazareth so that what the prophet said might be true he shall be called a branch so um as as daniel quips uh yeshua was the true branch branch davidian unlike the unlike the, the the fake ones that have showed up in our times uh he was truly the branch of david <clears throat> and um, I haven't had time to develop this, but in the Didache, in uh, I think chapter eight or nine, I forget. It, uh, it must be it must be nine. Yeah, definitely nine. Um, the Eucharistic prayers. The prayer in the Didache says that it starts out, "We give you thanks for the holy vine of David." We usually have vine of Jesse. Now we have vine of David. So the idea of, of the vine of the branch is clearly messianic and clearly part of early uh, attribution to Yeshua. And so that's been the normal uh, take here. The reason why I sought for another one is because it doesn't appear, at least anything that I can find, that even though Nazareth, 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 me, apparently is, is derived from the Hebrew word meaning branch, it doesn't appear as anybody made anything of that in the in the first century it's kind of like what does Tacoma mean nobody knows nobody cares you know I mean you can live in Tacoma for years and years and years and never even ask that question um, I suppose it's a little different if you if you live in a place that's that's you know called stinking swamp you know Missouri or something then I don't, excuse me any of you from Missouri I don't know if there is such a place but uh, but you know I suppose everyone would understand what that means but Tacoma apparently is uh, 
is some an Indian word, and I, I'm frankly I don't even know what it means. And uh, so it may be that Nazareth was was considered this village or the city, and no one thought about the meaning of the name. Uh, that's why it, it, it commends itself to me, not only that, but because I also read it in some very well-known commentators. Um, but it commends itself to me that the two sound alike and that he lived as a Nazarite in the sense of set apart to God. And uh, that, that would make sense to me. The parallels with Samuel then come, come a little more clear. Um, so would, would Nazareth have been viewed as the – would he then have been viewed as the despised one? I know that's an interpretation from Isaiah 53 that he will be despised and so forth. But those are different words that are used there. And so you, you, have, you, know, you have to link it through a lot of uh, – I think it's a little further linkage. You have to say, well, Nazareth was considered to be the country bumpkins. Anybody from Nazareth is going to be put down, looked down upon, as we know Nathaniel says. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And here he is. He's, he's prophesied in Isaiah 53 as being the ones that's despised and scorned and so forth. That, that can fit. But it, it, it seems like there's a play on the terms, on the words. We know that, that Matthew is keen on these kinds of things. 14 and 14 and 14, we determine, probably talks about the, the value of David's name. He wants us to dig a little deeper into words. And so when the, when the uh, prophets are constantly talking about this one who is set apart, when we, when we read in Isaiah who develops this whole uh, concept of the servant of the Lord, the servant of the Lord, as I said last week, I believe, or, or somewhere I said it, uh, is both Israel and the Messiah, right? It's both and. It's Cyrus, too. I mean, there's other uh, servants of the Lord. But... Um, what is the characteristic or the, uh, what should be the characteristic of the servant of the Lord as far as Isaiah is concerned? You're a servant of the Lord. You do his bidding. You're set apart to him. You have an ear to him. You have your eyes set towards him. The, the difference between the servant of the Lord as the nation of Israel and the servant of the Lord as the coming Messiah is that the servant of the Lord, speaking of the nation of Israel, is blind, is rebellious, is turning away from God. No one is blinder than my servant, declares the Lord. Here I feed and I give and I help and they don't know. They go to other gods. In contrast, then, is the coming servant of the Lord who is what? Entirely given over to God. Everything he does, he does with a view to honoring God. And, and, and the height of the servant songs then comes in the, in the 52 and, in chapters 52 and 53 and, and following of Isaiah, where you have the servant of the Lord is entirely given over, is holy unto God. And, and, and isn't that the picture of the Nazarite? And I know I'm trying to convince myself because um, it, it's, it's one possibility. But isn't that the picture of the Nazarite? This teaching is one of the 218 audio sessions found in the five-volume teaching series titled A Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by Tim Haig from Tor Resource. This product is the fruit of over three years of studying and teaching through the Gospel of Matthew verse by verse and from a messianic perspective. The five-volume set is available in softcover book or digitally as PDF files. To order your copy today, visit torresource.com. The Nazarite, if you look at the text in the Torah that teaches about the Nazarite, the Nazarite mimics the high priest. 
You look at the initiation of the high priest and the dedication of the high priest and you see how clearly the two are, are parallel in language and everything in the, uh, in the Torah. So there's a sense in which when someone took upon himself or herself a Nazarite vow, they were saying, I'm dedicated to the Lord on the same level as the high priest. I mean, that's the highest level of sanctity or holiness within a ceremonial kind of uh, recognition. And I hadn't even thought of bringing that idea in now that I'm just uh, listening to myself. Yeah, he, he was the high priest. He became the high priest. So we should reread the book of Hebrews with the Nazarite vow in mind and see where it fits and how it, how it comes in. If the theme is there, it will show itself. If it's not, we'll fall back on the traditional interpretation. Okay, but it's possible that, that Nazareth could, could have the idea of despised. Yeah, and I know that that's uh, been noted by uh, numbers of, of fine commentators as a possibility. And, and Nicodemus, and then as it goes on in later, earlier in John, it's where it says about no, that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Right. Doesn't everybody know? <laughs> where is he supposed to come from? Bethlehem. Right. Ken. Yeah, Tim, a question. I, it seems to me as though in some of my readings, and especially at Chronicles, you know, they would make reference to, is it not written in the book of, and name some yeah. vague prophet that we have like, no... Yeah, yeah, Yashar or something. And I just wonder if possibly something like this had been handed down, that it would said that the Messiah was to come from Nazareth. Yeah, that's uh, that also has been suggested, that something has been lost out of the prophets. I'm more nervous with that. You know, uh, it seems to me that uh, the scriptures uh, have been preserved. And uh, when we start opening the door to the possibility that we have lost scripture, uh, then there's no end to it. So um, I I think rather there's and, and again, what commends it to me is that he he nowhere else says, as it is said in the prophets, plural. When he's quoting, even sometimes when the apostolic scriptures appear to to uh, attribute a prophecy to the wrong prophet, they still are 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 are, are thinking of a single prophet and a text which they are quoting or paraphrasing. In this case, I don't think he's doing that. I think he's taking the amalgamated message of the prophets and saying, why would, for, for, for Matthew, the question is, why in the world would he settle in, in, in Nazareth, in the north? Wouldn't the Messiah come to the holy city and make the holy city his dwelling place? And, you know, this is why the uh, interpretation that it means someone who's despised has some commendation. Because he was. He was despised. He was considered of, of uh, no reputation, just like Isaiah 53 says. All right, let's um, refresh our memories about the more common interpretation. A second suggestion given by many is that Matthew is alluding to Isaiah 11.1 1, and the prophecy of the branch, which in the Hebrew is netzer. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And by the way, the, the Greek, another reason why I like the uh, Nazarite, uh, is that Greek for branch doesn't sound anything like netzer. Okay. But Greek for Nazareth and Greek for uh, Nazarite are very, very close because obviously the Greek is transliterating the, uh, the term Nazarite. In this case, the sound alike words would be Nazri 
Nazareth, and Netzer branch. This suggestion also has merit because, number one, Isaiah 11.1 was interpreted messianically by the Jewish sages. And so it was con- that the Messiah should be the Netzer was well known, even in the, in the current prayer book, okay, in the daily prayers. In the Shemone Esrei, we have the prayer that may you cause the branch of David success, by which is meant the Messiah. So uh, an allusion to the branch in the second in the sound of Natsri is possible, and it, and some would even say that the that the name Nazareth means is related to a branch. And it was an agricultural center, so that makes sense. Secondly, Isaiah 11 is very Davidic, and this fits with the open genealogy of Matthew. Matthew wants us to constantly see Yeshua as uh, connected to the line of David. Thirdly, other apostolic writers appeal to Isaiah 11 in relationship to Yeshua's work. And four... Since zemach, which means shoot, is also used in Isaiah 11, as well as as other prophets in a messianic way, this could help explain Matthew's use of the plural prophets. As the prophets have said, they talk about the branch, they talk about the shoot, and so there's a voice of prophets which speak in this in this way. And finally, it is possible that netzer, meaning branch, may have been pronounced as nazar, in uh, first century Hebrew, which is strikingly close to the form of Nazareth, Nazareth, as found in Matthew and Luke. I still like the connection with Nazir, and the substitution of Holy One of God in the Samson narrative of the Savage and so forth. So, how is it then that his living in Nazareth fulfills the prophets. Let's summarize. Here's my suggestion, and I need to add, I forgot in the conclusion to add a second suggestion, so I'll, I'll do that in the future. Matthew finds a general message in the prophets regarding the Messiah, a message that is connected with the word Nazarene, Nazri. By a play on the word, that is the sound of the word, Matthew connects to Nazarite, Nazir, by way of assonance. The primary characteristic of a Nazarite is that he or she was separated to God by way of a specific oath. This overarching idea of the Nazarite separated, that is, made holy unto God, was strong enough that in the two versions of the Septuagint in the story of Samson, Nazarite is replaced by Holy One of God. That strong connection between Nazarite and Holy One of God is the point Matthew is making. In the same way that a Nazarite is separated unto God, or holy, so Yeshua in all of his life lived out the quintessential meaning of a Nazarite vow, for he was the Holy One of God in every way. Thus, that by God's providence, Joseph would settle in Nazareth, and Yeshua would be known as Yeshua HaNatsri, was sufficiently close in Matthew's Midrash. He is, that is, Yeshua is, Yeshua HaNatsri, Yeshua HaNazir, and Yeshua HaKodesh, Adonai, the Holy One of God. Or, and, both and, he is the branch, the branch of David. So, some might say, well, boy, that's really far-fetched. No, it's not. Not if you read, not if you read rabbinic literature, it's not far-fetched at all. Not if you read the Hebrew that comes from those times periods, as best we can tell. That is not far-fetched at all. If, in fact, one of the reasons that it's so difficult to study the rabbinic uh, literature in English is because you miss all the word plays. You know, they they will they will uh, take a word and uh, uh, they will just turn the the three consonants around and read it backwards 
And they'll connect those two concepts together and you can't figure out how in the world he was talking about this and all of a sudden he's talking about that. No problem if you're reading the Hebrew, you see it very clearly. Or words that sound alike are oftentimes plays are done. So it's not far-fetched whatsoever that sound-alike words would be used in that way. And Matthew, therefore, falls well in line with, uh, with the normal usage of words in his day. I think it would be interesting for us, and I, I, it wouldn't be too hard to do this, to just list three or four good examples of that out of Midrash Rabbah or out of the Mishnah or out of the Talmud or out of one of the other Midrashim so that when the anti-missionaries come around, you say, well, that's interesting you should say that. Let me show you what Rabbi such-and-such says or what Rabbi such-and-such says. Who was he quoting here? What was he talking about here? And it's the same thing. It's the play on words and using the words in a Midrashic way to make your point. Okay, another comment? Uh, the question is, um, if Yeshua were a Nazarite, how would he deal with Pesach? No, I'm not saying that he was a Nazarite in the sense of avoiding all contact with the vine. What I'm saying is that he was viewed as holy as a Nazarite, that his life as a vow unto God was, was considered on the same level as a Nazarite, and that possibly at the end of his life, he did, as it were, take a Nazarite vow. I will not again drink this cup until I drink it with you in the kingdom. So that there was a sense in which his, his uh, priestly work, his, his current priestly work, was on the level of uh, a Nazarite uh, in, in, in the sense of entirely and in every way set apart to God. So that's my suggestion. Okay, let's go into chapter 3. Chapter 3 introduces Yochanan Hamatbil, or John the Baptist, which, by the way, does not mean that he was of the denomination of the Baptist Church. Now, I, I know that, that you know, for those of us that have read the Scriptures and read the Scriptures and read the Scriptures, um, uh, that is, that's a no-brainer. But, you know, people that have never read the Bible and they're coming out of uh, religious-less America, I've actually been asked that question. Is the Baptist denomination the right one? And I said, well, it's a funny question you should ask. Why, why do you ask it? So, well, because John was a Baptist. So that's not what it means. It actually does mean, as we say in the Hebrew, Yochanan Hamatbil, John, the one who was a mikvah doer. He was a baptizer. It, it comes from the verb to immerse in the Greek bakto. For instance, in Mark 6.24, the participle of bapto is used, yielding John the baptizer, or the one who baptizes, which is how the name should be understood throughout. It, it was not his last name, either. Okay. It was what he was known for. Now, you know, when we read about John the baptizer, Yochanan Hamatbil, in the Hebrew, this guy's weird. Okay? All right. This guy... Uh, and I say that in the most sacred of senses, okay? Um, this guy is different. I've been told that, and I, you probably have been told that about yourself sometimes. You, you know, you're really different. Um, but, but this guy was different, okay? He lived out in the desert. He ate foods produced in the desert. He didn't want any of that processed stuff from the Galil or from Jerusalem or anywhere else. He wore camel hair. Any of you ever... Any of you ever touched a camel? Camel hair isn't soft. It's not. It may have it may have uh, endurance, but it is not. It's definitely not your uh, the thing you want to snuggle up with, as far as I can tell. Maybe they had some process that softened it up. I don't know, but uh, this guy was different. Why does he come so differently? He's different, just like Elijah. That's why he really is. 
He's this guy that's willing to live out in the desert and be this prophet kind of a guy that calls people's attention to himself wherever he goes. You can't miss this guy. Um, The passage before us, the first 17 verses, divides easily into three sections. The first six verses introduce John, the baptizer. 7 through 12 reports John's encounter with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then the last verses, 13 through 17, describe the baptism of Yeshua. It begins this way. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And uh, if you think we're going to get to kingdom of heaven tonight, we're not. So don't don't worry. Um, <clears throat> we'll do that on our next next uh, class period. And it's one of those concepts that's huge. And trying, you know, it, but we don't want it to make it so huge that we can't just hold it in our hands. We need to be able, to, we need to understand this because the kingdom of heaven is the message of the gospels. Well, Matthew's story now skips ahead, shifting the focus of the narrative from the birth of Yeshua to his mikveh at the hands of John. Only Luke gives us any information about the intervening years. He writes of Yeshua's circumcision and naming on the eighth day, of Mary's observing the days of purification following the birth of a son, and the redemption of the firstborn, all of which were prescribed in the Torah. And Luke says it again and again, in accordance with what the Torah said, so forth and so on. The completion of the days of purification, as well as the redemption of the firstborn, required offering sacrifices at the temple. And since Luke specifically mentions the alternative offering of a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons in the place of a lamb and a pigeon for the burnt offering and sin offering respectively, we know that Mary and Joseph and Mary were not economically able to afford the more expensive sacrifice. They didn't bring a lamb. They brought the alternate, two turtle doves, two pigeons. Luke also describes the occasion of Yeshua's interchange with the sages in the temple courts when he was 12 years old and had traveled to Jerusalem with his family for Pesach. Except for these notices by Luke, the Gospels are are silent about Yeshua's childhood and adolescent years. We might ask ourselves why this was the case. Why did the gospel writers put little or no emphasis upon the years that intervened between Yeshua's birth and his public appearance as a teacher in Israel? You ever ask yourself that question? Wouldn't you like to have known? Wouldn't you like a, at least a year by year? Like, um, you know, his, his voice is changing. I mean, you know, something. We know that some that the same question was asked in the centuries immediately following his appearance because the apocryphal gospels and other works produced during this time do their best to fill in the missing information. The answer may be that the gospel writers lacked the information in the sources they utilized or that the sources had only scanty information regarding these years of Yeshua's life. Maybe if you were part of the immediate family, you would have known just because you talked together and you were together at festivals and so forth. But other than that, who keeps records of that stuff? Just families. After all, we would expect that Yeshua's upbringing was quite normal. A Jewish father bore five responsibilities, according to the sages. To circumcise him on the eighth day, pay the redemption for the firstborn, if in fact he was the firstborn, teach him Torah, find a wife for him, and teach him a trade. The first two Joseph did, as Luke makes clear. We may presume that if Yeshua confounded the sages at the age of 12, Joseph and Mary had taken seriously the requirement to teach him Torah. Yes. Question. said earlier about um, how they recorded things by detail. The very fact that they didn't, wouldn't that suggest that they weren't anticipating um, it's po- sure. it's possible. what happened, you know, how... It's possible. It's possible. But, I mean, when I say that they recorded things for details, there were things that were that were more important than others. In other words, you know, how old your kid was when he walked... Who cares? Except for mom and dad and, and grandma and grandpa, right? 
So yeah. I mean, in other words, they 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 may they may they may have remembered all of that, but would it have become public record? Would it been have been something that everybody in the village knew? Probably not. So when Matthew and Luke uh, and Mark and others seek their sources, when they go and talk to people, say, "Hey, did you know this issue of Nazareth?" Yeah. What'd you know about him? What they tell him probably relate more to what he did when he was a man than what he did when he was in the intervening years. Unless he had done something notably bad or good. Right? I mean, if, if, if he had been charged for murder, that probably would be remembered. You know, if he just worked day after day, six days a week, with his dad in his workshop and was a nice guy, what would you remember? Oh, he worked with his dad in the workshop and was a nice guy. Or something unusual, like at age 12, he confounded the, the, the teachers in, in the temple. Now, that would be, you know, that might stick out. Yeah, that's what I mean. Okay, marriage, while highly prized, was not considered absolutely necessary for every man. It's the second thing that the anti-missionaries bring up. They say, is not a, isn't it not a Torah commandment that you should be fruitful and multiply? Yeah, it is. Say, well, Yeshua never married, never had any kids. He broke the Torah. Well, that's nonsense. Uh, for example, Shimon ben Azai, a renowned disciple of Akiva and recognized regularly in the Talmud and other places, and a companion of Shimon ben Zoma, who also was a big, big wig at the time of Akiva, was never married and is regularly quoted as an authority in rabbinic literature. In fact, that, becomes, that became such a, a problem in later rabbinic uh, 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 writings that they, they started up a story that he actually was secretly married to Akiva's daughter, which was clearly not the case. As to Yeshua's occupation, so my point in that is, look, if anybody says, oh, Yeshua broke the Torah, no. When the Torah says be fruitful and multiply, it doesn't mean you're sinning if you don't. What happens if you're unable to multiply? And we know that there were, that there were good reasons for people to remain single. That's a misunderstanding of that Torah commandment. As to Yeshua's occupation in Mark 6.3, people refer to him as a tectone, which means a carpenter or a craftsman. According to Epictetus, Joseph made plows and yokes, which would have been made out of wood obtained locally. Thus, Joseph apparently trained Yeshua in his own craft. Since the people are surprised at Yeshua's wisdom, ability to teach, and the miracles he was performing, they ask, is this not the carpenter? Wait a minute. Who is this guy? He comes into the synagogue and he's teaching with all this authority and now he's doing these miracles. Isn't this, isn't this Yashi? Didn't he just, doesn't he have the shop down the street? It may well be that he, in his years of growing up, he was viewed as simply one of the community without the character of a wonder boy that later apocryphal works attributed to him. Though he doubtlessly had proven himself to be a righteous young man with full integrity, his membership in the local community of Nazareth may have been more or less lackluster when compared with the myths and fairy tales that grew up in the later centuries. In fact, Luke's short notice, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him, may be a comprehensive description of the years intervening his birth and his public appearance at the shores of Jordan. While such a description does not produce the religious fervor needed to build cathedrals, it does fit the highly praised description of the wisdom literature that considers character of far greater value than charisma. And it reminds us that the life of Torah is not impressed with trinkets of religion that may sparkle, but sets itself to obtain gold that endures the refiner's fire. So what I'm saying is, I don't think, this is my suggestion, he had a very ordinary upbringing, he had a very ordinary life. 
He had a very ordinary occupation. He was very ordinary. It's only the later years that have him walking around with a halo, making uh, birds out of clay and, and uh, uh, astounding his friends by his miracles when he was a teenager. I don't think he did that. I think he was one of the community. He probably was highly respected. He probably was, uh, uh, if he astounded the doctors at 12 years old, he probably was well sought after in terms of what do you think about this? And I think he, and, and from everything that we can tell, he wasn't called Yeshua. He was called Yeshua or even Yeshi. I mean, he probably, he was just one of the common men of the community. That's who he was. Okay, uh, question. Yeah, I just wanted to comment that uh, if uh, Yeshua's uh, intention was to come and, and live as a man, it, it wouldn't make any sense for him to come and live as a rock star. Right. Uh, it, would, it makes way more sense for him to just live as, you know, every every, every one of us. Right. Right. It. it I, this was a this was a, a a difficulty that I had some years ago, and that was on the one hand I had been teaching people, and I was trying to apply it to my own life that I should walk in the footsteps of Yeshua, but every but, but I was constantly hearing from what he, what he was doing that I shouldn't do that because only he could do that. So wait a minute, you know, I mean, he has the right to say to his parents, "Don't you know that I should have been in my father's house?" But you don't have the right to say that to your parents. Um, he, he has the right to call the Pharisees toppling walls and whited sepulchers, but you don't have that right. And when I ask, well, why? Well, because you don't know men's hearts the way he did. Wait a minute. You mean to tell me that he was living and walking here as the omniscient one and didn't have to learn and didn't have to, you know, uh, watch his manners and so forth? I don't think so. I think he walked as a common man a man in, in one way common, another way uncommon, in the sense that he was not uh, given in to the sin nature. And as a result of that, because he didn't have one, and as a result of that, he was all that a man should be. So undoubtedly, in terms of his character, he was head and shoulders above all. But in terms of his normal way of living and what he did day by day, he probably, and I think undoubtedly, was common. And so I can walk in his footsteps. I can take him as a pattern. Okay, another comment or question? If I understand correctly, within Judaism, you don't become a teacher until you're the age of 30. That's what the Perkei Avot says. Okay, so if that's the case, would we be surprised that stuff before his age of 30 would even be an issue? Because they wouldn't be concerned with it because he's not teaching them anything. Okay, good point. Excellent point. Another comment? Uh, because of the archaeological stuff that's been done at Nazareth, uh, w- what about the thinking that he was really the stonemason, not a carpenter of wood? Yeah. I mean, there's huge quarries there. Right. Archaeologically, everything right. that's been done there is yeah. is in the stone trades, yeah. nothing to do with the wood trades. Right. And uh, and, and admittedly, tectone can mean a craftsman. It can be in, in other than wood. But the earliest traditions are that it was in wood. and uh, And we know that the term was used for that. In, in even in non-biblical uh, Greek writings, so uh, you know, some years ago I actually I actually took that view. Well, he was probably a stonemason, uh, but I I think there's just as good evidence and maybe more evidence to say no, he 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 did work in wood, in an agricultural place uh, uh, region like that where they would need yokes, where they would need plows, where plows would constantly have to. I mean, wooden plows have to constantly be repaired or re- remade and so um, you know it wouldn't surprise me that that's what he did pardon me everybody in town needs furniture um, not to speak you know a, a, a carpenter wouldn't only make 
uh, fabricate uh, the things out of wood. He had also prepare wood for other people. Okay, so, you know, you take and uh, what was the forestation like at that time? Good question. I've actually seen a computer program that tries to produce that by the number of seeds they counted per square uh, meter in archaeological digs. And then the computer kind of says, well, it would take that many trees to produce that many seeds, you know, and so then it kind of draws. And uh, interestingly, in, in the first century, there were regions of Israel that are, are now quite barren that were at that time very, very thickly forested. So there was, there was plenty of wood. But wood, had, you know, trees had to be taken down. They had to be squared up. They had to be uh, resawn and so forth and so on. And that took time. So it wouldn't surprise me that he was engaged in some of that as well. Okay. Um, we'll go on for a few more minutes. It says, in the days, uh, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching. The opening words, in those days, when you read that, it just pops out at you if you've, if you've had to study Septuagint, are often used by Israel's prophets to designate the Messianic era and the time of Israel's restoration. I've given you a few examples. Some have, uh, th- by the way, in those examples I've given you, it's almost verbatim. That's how, you know, and it will come about in those days that God will pour out his spirit. It will come about in those days that God will bring back the people from the north, south, east, and the west. I mean, it's, you think, oh, every time you say, in those days, from the prophets, you're thinking, oh, <coughs> the coming redemption. Some have therefore suggested that Matthew's use of this same phrase signals that he wanted his readers to understand that the eschatological era had dawned and that salvation's, Israel's salvation was at hand. Oh, and, and let me just pause and say, it could just mean, in those days. <laughs> okay. <laughs> It could just mean in those days, but if you're if you're used to reading the Greek in the Septuagint, the, the, you say, you know, boy, I remember reading that time and again. So it, it's hard to believe that Matthew's readers wouldn't have felt the same way, even if they were reading it in Hebrew. It would it would it would uh, read the same. When it says that uh, John the Baptist came, it most likely means he made an appearance. Matthew gives no formal background to the person of John the Baptist, so we may presume that his readers already know about John or. Else Matthew's sources gave him little or no information about John's background to incorporate into his story. We don't know anything about this guy. I mean, from Matthew's perspective, we can gain some things from other Gospels. John came preaching using the word keruso, found in the Septuagint, as the most common translation of the verb kara, to call or to summon. While Yeshua proclaims the same message of repentance, Matthew regularly connects the Gospel with Yeshua's preaching. In contrast, John the Baptist is never said to preach the gospel. It never says that John went preaching the gospel. What did he preach? Repentance. Yet the content of John's proclamation is clearly in concert with and preparatory to the gospel for his message was a message of repentance. Let me summarize here the the, the location of John's uh, work. Where was it? It was Transjordan, according to uh, John one twenty eight. He was on the other side of the Jordan. Not on the Israel side. And, and if, if we accept John as historical there, which I don't see any reason why we shouldn't, what does that mean for us? Well, it may be that the Transjordan desert dwelling of John was to emphasize a re-entry of the land at the time of the approaching kingdom as a reenactment of Israel's original conquest of the land, but in this case, with a full awareness of the eschatological redemption that was dawning. In other words, he may have come into the Jordan from the other side to say it's just like when our people came into the land thousands of years ago originally. 
It may also have been to make the comparison with Elijah more accurate. Elijah found refuge in the desert, and it was from the desert that he was taken up in a chariot near the Jordan. Later tradition had it that Elijah was a Tishbite from the land of the Arabs, that is, from the Transjordan. So maybe there's the idea of John's connection with Elijah as well. John's activity and message are obviously complementary. That is, his calling people to repent in view of the imminent appearance of the kingdom of heaven was a matched with the administration of a baptism or mikvah. Once again, Matthew presumes that his readers need no explanation about what a mikvah entails and what it signified. However, in order for us to understand what John was doing and why, we must look into the historical method and significance of the Jewish immersion ritual. And um, I think we're going to, we'll save that for the next time that we meet, and maybe by that time I'll have it entirely complete so that you'll have all of the pages on mikvah. And I will uh, add some additional uh, at the end of the excursus on mikvah, I will add some reading sources that you can go to uh, maybe to help you. You know, most, or I shouldn't say most now, maybe it's different, but at least when I was growing up, if you were to ask people about what baptism was, what would they say? Well, I grew up in a Baptist church, so this was one of the fundamentals that you had to know. Baptism was what? Yeah, it was immersion, but why did you do it? An outward sign of an inward reality, and that inward reality was what? Salvation, death with Yeshua, and resurrection with Yeshua. Well, that's a pretty good answer, actually. But what in the world was John doing if that's what baptism is about? I can remember thinking of that when I was growing up. Say, wait a minute, John has a church, and he's getting all these new members? Because... In the church I grew up in, if somebody said they wanted to be a member of the church, you know what they had to do? They had to get baptized if they hadn't been baptized already or if they'd been baptized in the wrong church, right? Or sprinkled. Or sprinkled, but not, oh, no, 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 the Baptists are not sprinklers. Yeah, sorry. Uh, be immersed if you've been sprinkled. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, if, if you came in from the wrong church, that is, it was a non-Baptist church, or in the Baptist church in which I grew up, if you came in from the Baptist church, which was a little bit wrong, because our Baptist church was the only one that was right, um, that you, you, you really couldn't accept that either because you could never really know was it you know was it for real well, it would probably be better if you just got baptized again and it was a tradition in the church that I grew up in that after after people got baptized then the next Sunday usually uh, they would stand up front and everybody would pass by and shake their hands give them the right hand of fellowship so that they felt that they were part of the that they were part of the congregation you didn't get that until you got baptized right and so baptism and you know when when you start when you start thinking about how we view baptism in our in our modern uh, Christian circles, and you think about what John was doing, was it, what in the world was he doing? And why did Matthew not think for, that he had to explain any of this to any of his readers? Well, it's quite obvious. What John was doing was something that was very common, and all of his readers knew full well what it meant. It's our problem that we're separated by a couple thousand years in culture and time that we have to try to dig our way back into figuring out what in the world the mikvah is. So I started out by giving you a brief description of mikvah and talking about the rabbinic halakha, which may or may not have anything to do with what John was doing. But we'll do a study of the mikvah and figure out, um, you know, what modern Judaisms think about it and what we might be able to piece together in terms of first century uh, mikvahs and, and their meaning. Okay, any last questions or comments? Uh, Joni? Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how do we get hamatbil? Um, the uh, verb in the Hebrew, tabal, means to immerse. 
or to dunk. And mikvah means is mikvah is from the Hebrew word kava, which means to gather. And a mikvah is a place where water gathers. So oftentimes uh, um, in the Hebrew, you the nouns are formed from the hifil participle. In, in order to form a hifil participle, you put a mem on the front of the of the verb, essentially, with some of the violation differences. So you have katav to write, miktav, letter. All right? So it's the same thing going on there. You have uh, kaval to gather, mikva, a place where something is gathered, that is, a pool or pond. Okay? Any other questions, comments? Oh, and we'll see, too, that there's a nice play on words. Right? Because what does mikvah mean? Hope. Yeah, that's what mikvah means is hope. That's where we get hatikvah, the one who hopes, the one who gathers. And we have an example of that in Jeremiah 14 and 17, hope of Israel. So there, there are some crossing together of these words, and we'll see that next, next time we meet. You've been listening to the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. If you like this teaching and want to hear more, please visit us at TorahResource.com. Join us again next week as Tim takes us through another verse-by-verse lesson in the Gospel of Matthew.